0: Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, any person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word today, uh, we know we're not hearing uh, a children's story or some fable, we're not hearing from scientific journals, we're not hearing from a mathematician, but we're hearing from the one who is master over all, who is creator, who is all-wise, that even the wisdom of man is utter foolishness compared to you. And Father, as we turn to you today, to your word, uh, may this truth penetrate our hearts, but may it um, alter the way in which we think that would alter the way in which we live. Father, we pray for uh, Patrick Jaspers, that you would uh, guide him today, give him wisdom, give him clarity. Father, may he be empowered empower- by your spirit. We thank you for um, his willingness to serve our church, his willingness to, um, to prepare to preach your word today. We thank, this, thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right.
1: Thank you, Brady, and good morning to each of you. Thank you for the wonderful joy of being back here again at Gospel Life Church. Um, consider it a great honor. I do want to personally thank you uh, for your prayers for me a year ago. Uh, I went through quite an illness last fall, something totally unexpected. Um, I made the, I've, I've made many mistakes in my life, but I made the mistake of thinking that I was indestructible. Uh, that no one could work harder than me, no one could work longer than me, uh, that, not, that I was just an unstoppable force, and I discovered that I'm not. Uh, so uh, September 8th, a year ago, all of a sudden, some things began to happen in my body and in my brain that just had me down for the count. And uh, finally, my family, several of whom are here today, my family said to me, you're done pastoring. Uh, so uh, never anticipated a time that I would retire from pastoring. I, I didn't anticipate that. I thought I was going to pastor another 10, 15 years and then uh, was going to turn Ridgewood over to someone much younger and high-five the whole congregation out the door and go, yes! <laughs> and instead, instead, I was down for the count. But um, God, in His grace, has allowed a, a wonderful recovery uh, starting in January, about the middle of January and into the month of February, uh, begin to feel a little bit stronger again and things begin to come back a little bit to normal. My wife would tell you that I've never been normal. Um, but uh, for whatever normal is for Dave, that uh, she says that I'm back around 90% or so, and I'll, I'll take that. I'm glad for that. So although my pastoring days are behind me, um, I'm very grateful for those 42 years. I'm thankful that God still gives me opportunities to preach His Word on the Lord's Day. And when Pastor Brian asked me if I could fill in today while He and his son are in Africa. Uh, He didn't have to ask twice. Um, I was happy, more than happy to do that. So uh, thank you all for your prayers. And I just, on behalf of my family, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your prayers and for your love. And I do uh, thank God that during those eight, little bit over eight years that I was pastoring Ridgewood, that we had such an awesome relationship with Gospel Life Church. Just dear friends, so many common relationships and friendships. Um, even sharing BBS opportunities together, preaching, exchanging pulpits, all the different things we were able to do uh, because we love this church and you guys loved us and we thank you for that and, and we encourage you. And I, I thank you that as a church you pray uh, for all of the gospel ministries that are around this greater Joliet area. Thank you so much for doing that. So um, having said all of that, let's shift gears. Uh, the title of this morning um, is a bit of an audacious title. Uh, to, even, to even use that word. Or for some of you, maybe the fact that Dave is preaching is kind of audacious. Um, I can understand why you would think that or perhaps say that. But if you were listening as Brady was leading, reading that text to us, you heard an example of what are called the hard sayings of Jesus Christ. F.F. Um, Bruce, a number of years, years ago, uh, produced an excellent little book. It's almost, you could read it like a devotional if you want to do something really unusual. And in it, he deals with what he considers to be the 70 hard sayings of Jesus Christ. And they are hard. Some things that he said in that text that Brady was reading for a little while, if it doesn't make you stop and go, what? Then you weren't listening. Because they are hard sayings. On purpose. Jesus delighted in his leadership style and in his teaching style. Jesus delighted to say things that just made people stop in their tracks and go, what? And have to think. Now, one of the worst things that we could do would be to take the hard sayings of Jesus and make them anything less than what they were. Now, as you listen to them and read them and ponder them, you quickly begin to discover they're, they're not hard to understand. They're hard to obey. And that's the trick, right? So we're going to reread the verses that Brady just read. I'm actually going to tack on Luke's version of the same thing. It's only found in two verses. and These will all be on the screen. But as we look at these verses again, let us be present with the verses. Can I just ask that all those other things that are cluttering up your brain right now, you let go of? Did I remember to turn the oven on for the roast? What on earth is going on with the bears? Why is Dave here today? We miss Pastor Brian. I mean, whatever, whatever those things are that are cluttering your brain, because it happens, doesn't it? You know, we, we may be here physically, but we're not really present at times. Let's be present with these verses. I'm going to actually, after I read these six verses and then the two verses out of Luke, I'm going to actually ask you, what what is beginning to open up for you? What are you beginning to see? So first of all, from Matthew's text again, verse thirty-four, these are the words of our Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now that section is all a quotation out of Micah chapter 7, a reference to an ultimate form of God's judgment when relationships in life are falling apart. And you get in a situation where you can't trust anybody. Division. People being divided from one another. Then he continues and he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then from Luke's gospel, Luke 14, just verses 26 and 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children... And brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are hard sayings. Now, what's present with you right now? What What do you find yourself thinking about? Let me ask this question. First of all, who is this all about? Both in the Matthew text and the Luke text, it's all about who? Pardon me? Me, and who's the me? Okay. Anybody else have an opinion? Thank you, Chuck. (laughs) But you were brave, Chuck, and I admire that so much, okay? There, there are, it's interesting, you caught the right word, okay? So in, in Matthew's text, personal pronouns used nine times, me, my. And the Luke text is another four times. So for a total of 13 times, there's a personal pronoun being used. But who is that personal pronoun referring to? Jesus, Jesus, right? Now, Chuck, you were partially right, because it is then asking us, What is our relationship to him? Okay, so we're deeply involved. But it's about Jesus Christ. And and what is he asking of us? Now, some might say, well, he's asking us to be his disciples. Well, that's a part of it. But he's he's actually asking something even more profound. He is literally saying here, love me more. Love me more. Now think about that. I don't don't recall ever, Kathy and I have been married for 46 years. I have wonderful relationships. My mother is here today. Uh, My daughter and her family are here today. Some of you are wonderful friends. But I don't remember anybody ever saying to me, you got to love me more. If someone did, now that would be audacious, right? You have to love me more. I can just imagine some little kids playing and, And the one kid that has all the best toys, can you see see this happening? Demanding, you have to love me more, I'm taking my toys home. Okay, Um, Love me more. But it's Jesus that is saying this, love me more. So Jesus is challenging his followers to become his disciples. There is a difference. A follower is a follower. A disciple is a learner. So now that I'm seeking to learn more of him, what is it that he really wants? And what he says is, love me more. Now, what I'm going to challenge us about this morning, and this is, this is a spoiler alert, because this is what the whole sermon is about. In fact, as soon as I say this, you could go ahead and walk out because you've got the message. And my son-in-law said he may do it. Okay, but, um, but here, here's the whole point, all right? So what is the basis... Of Jesus then appropriately demanding that we love him more. And that the answer to that question comes back then to who is he? I have to understand the uniqueness of who this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, sovereign God, Messiah, gift of God, Savior, Redeemer, Lamb of God. Who is he? And it all goes back to who he is that then gives him the right to say, love me more. As we just meditate this morning on this text, let me first of all identify some things that the text is not saying. All right, three things. Number one, this text is not encouraging any form of use of swords or violence. Okay, I just want to make that clear. And it's sad that I have to say this because through the years of the history of the church, there have been those who have taken this text, Matthew 10, 34, and have used that to justify violence supposedly under the banner of Christ. You've you've studied the historical record of what are called the Crusades. Really, they were selfish land grabs, but much of it done under the quote-unquote banner of Christ. I've never have understood why so many Christian schools named their teams the Crusaders, um, when really what the Crusaders represented was very little about Christianity. Okay, I'd rather talk about the Eagles or the whatever you know, the Overcomers. Um, but uh, no, and, and and the advancing the kingdom of God at the edge of a sword—that's that, never been God's plan at all. Okay. Um, there have been in recent years even people who called themselves Baptists who would think that it was okay to stage violent demonstrations at funerals for military or things of that nature, thinking that through their violent actions, they're advancing the cause of Christ. That doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. God's word never advocates violence. Whoa, What about when Jesus made a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple? That was pretty violent, wasn't it? Actually, what that is is a phenomenal example of Jesus Christ wholly being given over to honoring the glory of God. Because what had taken place was an area called the outer courtyard, or sometimes it was called the court of women. It was an area of the temple designated for Gentiles to be able to worship God. Gentiles were not allowed in the temple area because they weren't Jews. But there was a place of worship provided for them, and that place of worship had been then usurped by the money changers, so the worship of God was at stake. And Jesus Christ in his righteousness made a whip and drove them out of there, okay? So it doesn't make sense to take this as a proof text for violence. I have not come to bring peace. I have come with the sword. Actually, the word sword is actually an allegory. I use that word allegory very carefully because in the history of the church, there have been entire theologies and entire false gospels built using allegory where men have said, well, I will determine what the Bible is saying instead of letting God say what he is saying. But there are times in the Bible where God uses words as an illustration. That's what an allegory really is. And as you think about this text, that word sword is a, a, an allegory or it's a reference to something that divides. That's what a sword does. If you chop with a sword, you're dividing something, okay? Maybe may be very violent. But the, the truth is Jesus Christ, because of who he is, divides. One of the the last men I had the privilege of leading to the Lord while I was pastoring at Ridgewood um, comes from a a family that um, claims to be of a particular religion, though they never go to church. Um, Maybe on Christmas, maybe, okay, but oh, but we are, you fill in the blank, okay. And uh, he gets saved, and man, all of a sudden, there's a division in that family. And not a division because he did or same thing wrong, but because Christ entered the picture. Jesus Christ has that ability to divide, doesn't he? Now, there will be ultimate peace. So when the angels at the incarnation of Christ saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, that's true. But that's in the future yet. In case you haven't been following the news, there's not a whole lot of peace in this world. There's a whole lot of absence of peace in this world. But one of these days, in that wonderful, when when Jesus comes in all of his glory, then there will be true and lasting peace. So first of all, just to, to set it at rest, this text is not advocating the use of swords or violence. So let's put that one behind us. Number two, and it's probably strange that I have to even say this, the text is not advocating that it's okay to hate your family. Now I can just imagine some nut job. How's that for a theological term? Um, I can just imagine some nut job reading this text and saying, well, dadgummit, I knew I was right to hate my family. That old lady drives me crazy. And these snot-nodes kids, that are driving me crazy. And now I find out I'm really spiritual because I hate my family. Okay. Now, what I don't understand is why did I start talking with a southern accent? I don't even know where that came from, Okay. <laughs> I think that was demonic, okay. Um, so my, I, my point is simply this. This is not in any way saying it's okay to hate, especially within our families. Now, to read that Luke text where he said, if you don't hate mother or father, let me challenge you, as you read that text, think in your mind, love less. Love less. It's actually a term of comparison. And the Matthew text is very clearly a text that demands a comparison. If you love father and mother more than me, that's a comparison, right? If you love father and mother more than me, then you're not worthy of me. So think, think the idea of, of loving less. Some, some have said, and I realize we can use these terms, but it's probably kind of hard to make it real, but some have said that our love for the Lord should be so great that in comparison, any other kind of affection would look like hate. Those words, I can understand those words logically. But the simple fact is, let's focus on the idea. Here's the challenge. Here's here's what God is drawing us toward is love me more. My mother's here today. Um, I love my mother. My wife is here today. I love my wife. My daughter, her family here today. I love my daughter and her family. She's given us our grandchildren. I love my grandchildren. They are, they are a, a, a great joy. I don't know about you, but every generation gets sweeter in my mind. Okay, that's a great joy. So then understanding how much I love those who are closest to me, the challenge is to hear the words of Jesus, love me more. All right? So first of all, this text is not teaching that the use of sores or violence is okay. Uh uh-uh. This text is not teaching in any way that it's okay to hate your family, don't even go there. And then, last of all, it is not teaching that it is somehow sinful or wrong to love our families. Okay, I don't feel a bit guilty that I can say that Kathy is and has been for forty-six years the love of my life. I don't feel a bit guilty about bragging on my children or my grandchildren. I I love them. Okay, but what it is saying is, listen to the words of our Lord when He says, "Love." me more. So again ask the question, what kind of a person could really say that? What kind of a person has the right to say love me more? If this was your first exposure to Jesus, if you didn't have any kind of a theological underpinnings and if you heard him say love me more, and not only more than these relationships that I've been talking about, but even more than your own life? What kind of a person could say that? That would make you scratch your head, make you wonder about that, okay? So, what do we then glean from the text? There are four simple ways in which we understand what Christ is saying about himself based on this text, okay? First thing we notice here is that this text argues for. In understanding who he is, it argues for the preexistence. Jesus' preexistence, and not just preexistence, preexistence as God. So listen again to verse 35. Uh, let me get down here. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Verse five, uh, 35, for I have come. Now that, that language is language that is then assuming that he existed somewhere before he came here. This is not like, since I came from Jericho to Jerusalem, or I I came from this region here, or if I said this morning that my wife and I drove down from Streamwood in the northwest suburbs to be here to worship with you today, that we just kind of transgressed some miles. No, this is speaking of having existed somewhere before So the first thing that begins to point us in the direction of fully comprehending what he is claiming about himself is to understand that he is claiming to have existed before he stepped into humanity and stepped into his creation and literally became a part of his creation. And for that, we celebrate the upcoming season of Advent. And what a glorious time that is. So the fact that he says, I came, I came, I came, is arguing for the fact that he existed before he came. Number two, this is also teaching us that in his coming, there was a purpose. So he articulates the fact that he came. He says that in verse 34 twice. He says it again in verse number 35, I have come. But it's also indicating here that In his coming, there is a purpose. He says, do not think that I have come to, and then he references bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to, said man. That that infers purpose. You understand what I'm saying? So there's, first of all, there is an assertion that he existed before he came, and that relates to the fact that Jesus is God that Jesus existed as God prior to his coming to this earth. But secondly, it points us to another truth that I think is, is remarkable, the fact that he came He came with a purpose, but don't miss this, church. He came with a purpose different than what we would assume the purpose would be. Because it bothers some people to hear Jesus say, do not think that I came to bring peace, because we love the angel song, peace on earth, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. We, we long for peace. We pray for peace. We're supposed to pray for peace. That's a good thing to do. But, but Jesus is inferring here that in his coming, he came for a purpose, but his purpose is remarkably different than what we might assume. Was not that the experience of the disciples who followed our Lord? Because they assumed that Jesus had come to establish his throne. And that they were going to be probably in his inner circle or his cabinet or uh, have unique positions because of their closest to him. And they were looking for Jesus to throw out the occupying Roman, Roman forces and to reestablish so that Israel would become once again the, the beauty of God's delight. And Jesus is saying, You don't understand why I came. I, I came for a purpose, but it's not the purpose you think. We today know the purpose. He came as our Messiah. He came as our redeemer. He came to buy us back from the prison house of sin. He came to save us. So, number one, Jesus' statement here argues for his preexistence as God. That's who he is. It argues for the fact that he came with a purpose. But because he is God and knows everything, and we don't know nearly everything, we don't know much at all, His purpose, at least that's true for me, his purpose is different than what we might assume. So let me ask this question. What kind of a man would talk this way? I existed before I came to this world. I came to this world with a purpose. Oh, and by the way, my purpose is totally different than what you think my purpose may be. Who talks that way? God. Thank you, Chuck. (laughs) You're redeeming yourself. All right, good job. (laughs) All right, number three, number three. Listen to what he demands of those who would follow him. Wow, these statements, every time I read them, they are so convicting to me. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And even whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He demands a lot. He demands a lot. He demanded to be loved by his followers more than they would love even the dearest people on earth. How many great poems and songs and stories have been told about Dear old mom, or dear old dad, or this relationship, or that relationship. All the themes of love, and all the things that that stirs up. And yet Jesus says, but the love that I require from you is bigger than that. It's more than that. Love me more. He demanded that. He even dared say that we were to love him more than we love our own lives. How in the last 2,000 years? Have there been hundreds of thousands? Yea, when we get to heaven, I think we're going to find out it's in the multiple millions and millions of souls that gave their lives for the cause of Christ. And it's happening today. Don't think for a moment it's not going on today. The, The greatest missionary stories that could be told today, you and I will never hear about because they're happening in locations where it's not even legal to even name the name of Christ. There's no way for us to know, but God is working. How is it that someone is able to pay that ultimate sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Because they love him more. Love me more. So he said that this idea, even expressed by the phrase, take up your cross and follow me. And I hope you think about the fact that at that moment, the cross was not a jewelry item. It was not something sentimental that we look to the way we do today. Today for us, the cross is beautiful because of what it represents, but not at this moment. When Jesus said this, those people in the Galilee region knew what crosses were used for. They were a place of execution. Some of the zealous Jews in the Galilee region had tried to lead a revolt against Rome, and Rome came down like a crushing hammer. Tens of thousands of Jews were nailed to crosses, lining the roadways, and left there to die in utter agony. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he was referencing something that only had one identity, and that was brutal execution. So Jesus is literally saying, if you're not even willing to suffer and even die for me, you're not worthy of me. A few weeks ago, Pastor Heller and I had coffee together. And he'd asked me to preach, and I was so I was talking him through this text and what the Lord was teaching me out of this text. And we had a really good time just kind of reviewing where I was going. I wasn't getting his approval. I just wanted to know what God was. I was excited about what God was te- teaching me about the text, and I kept coming back to that: "Love me more, or you're not worthy of me." And Pastor Hiller said, "It makes you. It makes you stop and think about Hebrews 11, where in the latter part of the passage it talks about all of those men and women." And all the exploits and all the things they suffered, and some were sawn into, and, and people died for the cause of Christ. It says, Of whom the world, remember this? It's Hebrews 11 38. Of whom the world is not worthy. But now we're talking about something beyond that not being worthy of Christ. It's amazing. Amazing. Okay. So that leads me to the fourth thing that's taught here, and that is Jesus' claim to be the very source of life. He said in verse number 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So first of all, consider that in saying this, he places himself at the very center of life. In other words, he's saying, without me, there is no life. And without me, even those who would say that they want to be wrapped up in pursuing their life because it's what they want he said they're going to wind up losing their life. But those who then say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you because that's all that matters, they wind up gaining life. It's an oxymoron. It's a hard saying, but it's a true statement because he claims to be the very center of the essence of life. Who does that? And the answer is the one, the only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah. God, robed in human flesh. And it is because of who he is that he has every right to say, love me more. Go ahead and advance to that next slide. Um, now just, I want you to catch this. Through his hard sayings, Jesus did make some rather audacious claims. But in doing so, what he's literally doing, and I'm hoping this is what it's provoking for you today, is that he's literally forcing us to stop and remember who then would ever talk this way. And when I recognize it's God, the creator, talking this way, he has every right to make this claim of me. So this morning, as we wrap this up, I'm going to lead us today to do something that actually Christians have been doing for centuries. Christians are confessional by nature. Amen. Christians are confessional. We write out in confessions of faith what we believe. And it's been done over and over and over through the history of the church. And it's it's a great heritage for us today to celebrate some of the great confessions of faith. People have confessed verbally. Verbally. What they believe about the Lord. So this morning, I would like uh, like for us to practice being confessional Christians, and I'm going to get us started by the example of Moses, who is confessional. Um, You remember how that as the Lord was preparing to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, that He sent a series of plagues. The plagues were decimating to both the economy and the morale of Egypt, and the plagues systematically destroyed all of the underpinnings for the false religions that were accepted as true in Egypt until the plagues. And then the plagues destroyed it all. But among the ten plagues, and you know the stories well, among the ten plagues, my favorite is the plague of frogs. Uh, this just shows you what kind of sense of humor that I have, but the plague of frogs. The Bible says that uh, after Moses had warned the Pharaoh what was going to happen if he did not let Israel go, that God was going to send frogs into the land. And I can just imagine Pharaoh going, Ooh, look at me shaking my boots. Oh, frogs. Oh, wow. Ooh, frogs. Okay. Well, Pharaoh had no clue. Because when God then placed the plague of frogs in the land, the Bible says the frogs were everywhere. And I love the text in Exodus chapter 8 because it talks about the fact they were everywhere. The, the frogs were in the homes. The frogs were in the bed can okay? So you imagine trying to sleep at night, all night long, ribbit, ribbit. Okay, the frogs were going on. The frogs were in the beds themselves. You know, so the wife pulls back the sheets to get in bed, and here's a great big old frog going, hey, come on in. Okay, (laughs) frogs in the land. Frogs everywhere. The Bible says the frogs were in the kneading troughs where the women would make the dough. The frogs were in the ovens. So here's a group of Egyptian women, and they're trying to make bread, and what is this lump in my dough? And I'm squeezing this lump, and all of a sudden, there goes a frog jumping out of the frog. The frogs were in the ovens. They'd open the oven door, and there's a frog there looking at them. Frogs were everywhere. Literally, the text described, you could not bring your feet down without stepping on frogs. I used to love it as a kid to run around barefoot, didn't you? And every once in a while, if there had been rains to kind of find a mud puddle somewhere, and, and step in the mud and feel that cool mud oozing up between your toes, that wasn't mud between their toes, all right? Everywhere they're stepping, slime and frogs, it's everywhere. So finally, Pharaoh says, Moses, get rid of the frogs. And Moses asks a, a very important question, and it is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 8 and verse number 10. Moses had said to him, he said to, to the Pharaoh, he said, When do you want me to ask God to get rid of the frogs? Now, now Trish, do you remember the answer? When, when, when Moses asked Pharaoh, All right, you want me to get rid of the frogs? When do you want me to pray and ask God to get rid of the frogs? And Pharaoh said, what? Tomorrow. <laughs> you ever heard a dumber answer in all your life? I mean, these frogs were everywhere. I, I can imagine that Pharaoh's workers and officers around him are probably going, are you dumb or what? Tomorrow? So listen to what Moses responds with and his Confession. And that's going to help us in our confession. So Exodus 8, verse 10. Be it as you say, so you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. What was God's purpose in the plagues? His purpose was to to demonstrate a truth that would stand through eternity. There is no one like the Lord our God. So church this morning... I'd like to invite you to confess that truth out loud. Now, if you can't say this and mean it, then just stay quiet. But if you can confess with Moses' confession, then let's say it together, and we'll just simply say these words. There is no one like the Lord our God. Would you say that with me together? There is no one like the Lord our God. Isn't that wonderful? And by the way, it's powerful, I don't know about you, but it's powerful to hear our own words saying that. We just confess truth. There is no one like the Lord our God. Later on, after the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea where they crossed on dry ground over two million people with all their belongings and their herds and their flocks and their servants. And as they got across to the other side, Moses sang a song to the Lord. It is recorded in Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 10. And here's what Moses asks. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And together with Moses' confession that he said in chapter 8, together out loud we confess, there is no one like the Lord our God. You remember the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2? And this lady desperately, desperately longed for children, but could not conceive. And with her broken heart, she pleads and begs for God to intervene and made a promise that if God would answer her prayer, that she would then take that child and give that child back to the Lord as a gift to God. God heard that prayer. Within the year, Elkanah and Hannah conceived. And when she brought Samuel to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord, she sang a song. And a part of that song is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 2, when Hannah saying, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. So together we confess, church, there is no one like the Lord our God. King David, the most popular of all of the kings of the nation of Israel, The one for whom Jesus is named, son of David, longed to build a house for God. Felt that it was only appropriate that a house be built for God. And God said to David, no, you will not build that house for me. Your hands are bloody. You've been a warrior. But he said, your son Solomon will build that house for me. But then he revealed something to David that David did not have any idea was coming and God promised David that his seed would never be left off the throne of Israel. That the seed of David would endure, obviously, a picture of Christ. And when David heard that promise, he was bowled over. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse number 22, David exclaimed in awe before God, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so with David of old, we confess as a church together, there is no one like the Lord our God. Later, King Solomon, after building the beautiful temple, led in an incredible worship ceremony to dedicate that temple, the Ark of the Covenant, was brought in grand procession to the temple site, and there it was placed to rest within the Holy of Holies, a chamber 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot, overlaid with gold, golden cherubims whose wings spread to touch the opposite walls and touch each other. And under those cherubims' wings, the Ark of the Covenant was set. And in his prayer of dedication, King Solomon also confessed, and we read this in 1 Kings 8 and verse 23, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And so, church, together we confess, ready? There is no one like the Lord our God. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, probably not very impressive by the world's standards, but what a compassionate, tender heart. And even Jeremiah, in his proclamations, honored who God was. And that's why we find written by the prophet Jeremiah, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due among all the wise ones of the nations And in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Jeremiah chapter 10. So together as a church, we confess there is no one like the Lord our God. Only once more. Can you hang on? Okay, I know you're getting tired of me. Here we go. The psalmist in Psalm 89 gives to us an example of what worship actually looks and sounds like. That's one of the great blessings of the collection called the Psalter. So in Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8, here's what's admonished. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. So once more, as a church, we confess there is no one like the Lord our God. Jesus Christ, in his teaching of the disciples and those who would be his followers made some pretty audacious claims. But those audacious claims demand a response on our behalf. It, did, I, did I say on our behalf? Um, in, in our behalf. I just heard my word saying. What was that? Okay. Um, that, that it demands a response from our hearts to him. That's what I tried, was trying to say. So I, I call our thinking back to what a 17th century Scottish preacher had to say. His name was John Duncan and he presented what would be called a trilemma. Now, we know what a dilemma is. We we pronounce it dilemma, okay? But a dilemma is when I have two choices, and I have to figure out which way am I going to go. Well, John Duncan suggested that when it comes to who Jesus Christ really is, there's a trilemma. So here's what Duncan said, a 17th-century preacher. Christ is either, number one, deceived Christ either, number one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud, so he was a total phony, or two, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was the divine. Now, that's a trilemma. Which of those three is true? 20th century writer, philosopher, um, C.S. Lewis took that same concept, and on his radio program over the BBC, C.S. Lewis asked this question. He said, Jesus claimed to be God. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. You have to choose one. And that's why Jesus said, love me more. By what right does Jesus claim Love me more. And the answer is because there is no one like the Lord our God. Love me more. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity today that we have had to study your word. Thank you for the record in scripture of some of these hard sayings of Jesus Christ. Thank you that because they're hard, they force us to stop and think. And thank you that even in this text, you didn't simply just leave us with something that we needed to work at, love you more, then that becomes something we do in the strength of our flesh. You called us to love you more because of who you are. And Lord, together we do confess that there is no one like you. No one like the Lord our God. So today, draw our hearts to worship you more. Draw our hearts to love you more. Draw our hearts to trust you more because we are totally safe in your hands. There is no better place than to be totally, unreservedly committed to you, loving you more, safe and securing you. Thank you for that. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.